Hello and welcome to the Sea of Startups, where we dive into the stories behind the startups in Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin, Managing Partner of Indelible Ventures. Now, if you're a founder or funder looking to learn more about what drives the startups in Southeast Asia, this podcast is for you. We're about to sit down with founders to uncover the unique insights into the origins and motivations behind launching their startups. We'll uncover the stories behind the struggles, the ups, the downs guided from the view of an entrepreneur. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's show. All right. My guest today is Azran Osmanrani, the co-founder of Naluri. For those of you who don't know, Naluri provides an integrated digital care solution that combines support for both physical and mental health. Thank you very much for being here, Azran. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Kevin. Very cool. So anybody that knows me know that knows that I always start with the origin questions. So take me sure. back. How did you start the entrepreneurial journey in the first place? And how did you land on Naluri? Cool. Uh, so Naluri is my third venture uh, that I've built. Uh, the first was an airline uh, from startup to IPO six years later. And then my friends and I started iFlix, which sort of like the Netflix for emerging markets, uh, scale that to 20 million users in 20 countries in three years. Uh, that got sold off to Tencent, um, and in 2017, uh, a coffee conversation uh, led to the genesis of Nellery because um, two ideas. One, when we reflected back on how we started iFlix and how over 100 investors had rejected us because they said five guys in KL don't stand a chance against a global giant like Netflix. But luckily, we did get investor number 116 on board. And what we showed is, as great as a product as Netflix is, Southeast Asians and people across the broader Asia region don't really watch Hollywood shows in English, don't have credit cards for payment, don't have high-speed broadband, right? And so you got to tailor something that's much more locally relevant uh, to the culture and infrastructure here in Southeast Asia. And another conversation led to health. And, and I think why this is important is because some of the themes across both the airline at X and iFlix was always about how do we make things more affordable and accessible to the mass market. Uh, and as we talked about the need for health similarly, uh, I was triggered uh, looking back at how I had lost my father to diabetes and cancer. And what I noticed was the medical system was only taking care of his physical health. Take this medication, do the surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy. But when someone's going through a condition like that, now we realize that what, we went, what he went through was depression and anxiety. And when it's untreated and unsupported, it led to skip chemo sessions, miss medication, which made things worse, right? And so I felt that the healthcare system was very siloed, right? And there wasn't a way to provide support, uh, especially mental health support for people with these chronic conditions. Um, and also looking back, you know, access to these services are, you know, very hard in Southeast Asia. It's not affordable. And could I perhaps take some of my lessons learned from iFlix and apply to build a new venture? here uh, in Southeast Asia. And that one conf coffee conversation led to 60 other conversations and led to uh, starting the team. 
Okay. I, I, I love how it's kind of a navigation of a variety of entrepreneurial journeys, because there's not really a whole lot of corollary between an airline to iFlix on the health, but this the stream of entrepreneurship and kind of the desire to do something tailored to the local environment, et cetera, there is a, there is a bit of a common thread across mm. those. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you you mentioned the challenge with getting investors. So I have to revisit this. Since a serial entrepreneur, when you're on your third one, considering a successful exit, et cetera, was it a little bit easier going to market the third time or still the same challenges? Not at all. In fact, <laughs> uh, we've done five uh, funding rounds at iFlix alone. So this would be my 12th round across the three ventures. And the most recent one this June was the absolute hardest. Okay. <laughs> so it doesn't get easier, but you're more familiar with the pain. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Do Do you at least have more people on your on your phone to where you can call up? You start You start getting. You don't have to worry about the cold calling as much anymore because you're, you're a you're familiar right. name. Sure. In, in that sense, yes, it does help. Uh, but you know, similar percentage of being ghosted and <laughs> and being declined and yeah. you know, kind of polite dragging on still happens yeah unfortunately that's a that's a common thread there's so there's oftentimes more no's than there are yeses and sometimes people aren't friendly enough in order to give the no right at the beginning so you have to just kind of follow it where it may lean that's um, right so so tell me then so after all of these coffee conversations when you're when you when you're settled on the idea you're wanting to build what did the, what did the mvp look like at first when you went, when you went to market to begin with what what was that process to sure. get the mvp up so, so there are two things one was i wanted to talk to as many people in the healthcare uh, industry from hospital directors and specialists to insurance ceos and hr directors to i and one whether the problem that I wanted to tackle was a relevant problem for them. And second, the approach that I wanted to tackle is different from what they already have going. And while they were, while I was doing that and getting that feedback, the other thing I did was to build a pre-MVP, as in a minimum non-viable product. <laughs> and that product was literally just WhatsApp. Okay. Right? I had a psychologist. I posted on Facebook to see whether people wanted to have a chat with psychologists because step one whether text-based chat was something people were open to instead of live one-on-one -on -one conversations whether through that people would actually open up to their hardships and challenges and whether we could actually entice or, or guide them to want to do something about it um and in that process for example you you discover that uh, the psychologist needed to ask very similar questions or explain the same concepts over and over again. And that meant taking up a lot of time. So my one intern started to design using PowerPoint and screenshots, you know, kind of structured questions and A box, B box, C box, that so you can send it as an image and someone can reply B, which is a lot easier, right, than typing and waiting for a response. Um, and from those, you know, kind of 50 pilot projects on WhatsApp, you realize, wow, like, you know, people were opening up and they were crying and being emotional because they had never um, kind of surfaced these issues that they kept deep buried inside of them. And, you know, quite a number were really motivated and felt supported to want to get healthier. Uh, so that led to me saying, hey, you know what, there's something here. Um, I kind of, in, in the 60 conversations, I found my co-founder, uh, Jeremy, Dr. Jeremy, he's a medical doctor and, and healthcare system specialist. And we both agreed we're gonna 
build the first product uh, using our own uh, cash and then get it to a stage where we can raise the first seed round. Okay. And you have experience building product in the past before. So was yeah. was was it a little bit smoother dealing with kind of, you know, the fast build, not having being a little bit smarter about not having as much legacy tech debt as you as you're scaling up and, and so forth? Or is it it's pretty similar sort of build as you go, iterating, not sure what the end product is gonna look like. You're just kind of uh move it moving um, moving quick. Look, I I don't think it was certainly as smooth, right? You look back and you think, boy, there were, you know, 10 different decisions we could have done differently. Mm. But it is better, I think, than the first time you're creating something completely from scratch. Because in this case, unlike uh, the other ventures, when you're just using money out of pocket, we started with only one part-time software engineer, Mm. Um, you know, and we had to make some quick decisions about um, uh, the architecture and the tech stack. But luckily, I had experience with AWS and, you know, sought guidance from them so that at least some of the foundational work is a little bit more robust um, that we could build on from. Um, but still, I mean, we, we've, we've had to rebuild the entire front end, uh, re-architect the whole back end with um, Amazon uh, in, in the first couple of years. Okay. Okay. So you, you get, you, you'd end up deciding to build this. You have one part-time software engineer on, on staff. What comes next? Do you, do you start going out and trying to sell it into market or are you still in the testing phase where you're trying to get more test people on board? Yeah, definitely. Uh, even when we had what we would call crude, crude MVP, as in, you know, it's a functional product. You can download it from uh, the app store or Google play uh, that would have been April 2018, but the first paid client was September 2018, mm-hmm. right? So there's still a lot of, let's give it out there, uh, let's test it out, get feedback. You realize, you know, for example, uh, even in May, we, we did sort of a, an initial partnership with one of the insurance companies who just happened to have launched a first digital insurance product targeted at millennials, right? And so mm-hmm. Nullary was offered as like a, free add-on if you buy that insurance. And what we discovered is they were not interested at all at using Nullary because at the point that you're buying insurance, and especially if you're a millennial, mm-hmm. I don't have a reason to want to change my life. Similarly, another pilot where you know we, we talked to this big organization who said, a big chunk of our healthcare costs are our retirees. Mm-hmm. Can you do something with them? Especially because uh, a lot of them were dealing with diabetes. Mm-hmm. But if you've been living with diabetes for 10, 20 years and here someone gives you an app and you're 60 years old, you'd be like, no, I'm good. It's all in the hands of God, right? Mm-hmm. I, it's fate already that I'm in this condition. Mm-hmm. But we then discovered that the, the best optimal use case was the point when someone is first diagnosed. Okay. And for example, an insurance company would know because uh, you know, they'll get the first claim, right? Maybe it's for, you know, metforming and early diabetes drugs. So someone's just been diagnosed with diabetes or hypertension. And if you go to them and say, hey, uh, you know, we'd like to support you uh, with, with uh, you know, helping you manage your condition. Here's how you can do it online. Then it started to make sense and there was some traction with usage. 
Okay. So the the key entry point, uh, it, it's it's interesting how you kind of navigated through to try and find what the ideal customer persona, the the ideal use case would end up being. So mm-hmm. it it really comes down to the partnerships with the insurance company as being that first point of recognition, or perhaps I guess have you migrated a lot and in heavily into the service providers as well as also being kind of the first recognition point for the same diagnosis example. Yeah. So. So the first two partnerships were with two different insurance companies, and they were because uh, the CEOs were part of my you know, initial 60 conversations, right? Being able to reach out to them, say, hey, yeah. here's what I, I want to build. And, and they got excited because it just happened to fit with their new product launch uh, agenda. Okay. But even then, it was still very uh, you know, small uh, tests and pilot projects. The, the main kind of client that came on board was you know, one of our largest energy companies here, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where the the head of health was looking for a digital health solution. They only were familiar with the telehealth or telemedicine platforms that were available here. Uh, and they realized that they needed to take a preventive approach to health because when their engineers or technicians get unhealthy and can't work on the plants, it's a massive opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. And sometime, somehow, you know, he met uh, someone from the Ministry of Health who said, Hey, you know what? I met this guy Azran, who's building something that sounds, you know, very targeted at, at your need. Why don't you reach out to him? And here's his mobile number, and that led to one conversation, and and that actually became our first real paid program that today is still kind of a foundational client for us. Okay, and has that then been kind of setting the, setting the stage for how you go out and approach clients, taking taking that one kind of foundational starting point and saying, okay, now I just need to replicate all of the steps and the use case to to kind of iterate on that. Um, well, I wouldn't say we we nailed it in the first part, but mm. what we discovered is that uh, unlike insurers, employers are uh, much easier to engage because not only do they have to bear the burden of direct medical costs, Mm -hmm. but they also value indirect costs, i.e. productivity loss from absenteeism or presenteeism, or in this case, when the the technical workers can't work on the plant because they're unhealthy, the replacement cost or the opportunity cost is massive. Mm -hmm. Whereas insurers are mainly focused on only when you are medically claiming something. Right. So the value of improving that is a lot less. Uh, So uh, that then kind of really got us to focus a lot more on reaching out to corporate clients and having one reference clients because our first uh, project was successful, gave us the reference for us to reach out to banks and telcos who called that first client and said, are these guys from Nullary Real? Oh, okay, they're doing good work. Great. We'll start with them. Okay. And how, as, as, you, as you start seeing all of this, how's the, how's the product development kind of keeping pace with some mm. of these realizations as well? How are you, how are you maintaining the balance? Mm. Well, maybe at, at a higher level, right? When we first started, um, the idea of saying, hey, we have psychologists and we wanted to provide mental health support, even for those with diabetes or hypertension, there was a lot of reluctance, right? Their focus was, Azran, you know what? Thank you, but you know I think your doctor and your dietitian and your fitness coach can be um, uh, more relevant um, because they can clearly see the direct connection. Uh, and digital made sense, right? Because these these are employees in remote locations uh, that you can't send medical personnel to and check in on them almost every day. Um, 
And so in a way, our psychologists were these hidden Greek soldiers in the Trojan horse called a diabetes management program or a high blood pressure management program because the psychologist was still instrumental because you needed to get to the moods, mindsets, and motivations of these employees to want to change. Because if you only told, you know, a doctor said, you know what, you got to cut down on your fried rice and exercise more. They'd be like, yeah, I know that, but that doesn't <laughs> compel them to actually want to make a difference. Right. Um, so that's kind of how we started. And then COVID happened and suddenly mental health became front mm. and center because our clients started to see and experience real burnout and disengagement and resignations and unfortunately even suicides. And they needed a digital mental health service because we were all in lockdown. We were all you know, working remotely. You know, the, the traditional model of face-to-face -face therapy mm -hmm. uh, broke down. And we just happened to be at the right place and right time because we had an existing set of, you know, maybe 20 clients then, right, that, that reached out for us. Mm -hmm. and, and we grew threefold uh, during COVID because of suddenly how mental health became a front and center for these large employers. Okay. And do, do you see any challenges with breaking some of the stigmas around mental health? Was having it as a digital uh, accessibility something that could actually overcome that? Because I, I know in many parts of the world, there's there's not always an openness in mm. order to speak to somebody, especially if you have to physically be in front of somebody. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I like to say if if, you know, zero was completely stigmatized, no one will talk about it. And, and 100 is complete acceptance. COVID brought us from three to 15, <laughs> right? So we fivefold, but, you know, we still have a long way to go. Okay. Uh, but I think what made that difference, number one, was top business leaders making this a priority, right? I had group CEOs of the largest banks and telcos and oil and gas companies saying, guys, this is a priority for us. We're providing the service. It's completely confidential because we want to make sure that you're taken care of. Mm -hmm. Number one, that, that made a difference. Uh, digital, I think, does help, especially with the under 40 segment who are much more familiar and comfortable with apps. Uh, but even as we start to add things like 24-7 uh, care lines, right? If, you know, if you're really in a distressed state, I don't want to download an app and sign up. I just need to call someone and, and, and talk to someone immediately. 2021, we launched our first WhatsApp service. Mm -hmm. Turns out six times as many people when they're in a distress state reaches out to WhatsApp when they say, when we're giving them an option, 24-7 counselors, uh, psychologists readily available to support you on WhatsApp versus call, right? Click two buttons, six times as many preferred WhatsApp. So text create that, that slight asynchronous communication creates a little bit more distance than picking up the phone and, and talking to a human. Um, and of course that allows us to then, you know, take a lot of that text-based data, use our uh, NLP algorithms to help kind of quantify emotional sentiment, distress so that we can mm -hmm. prioritize who needs what help when. And there's always a live person backing each of these interactions, is it? Yeah, so uh, we're not at this point believers in, you know, uh, chatbot only, mm. but how can we use AI and tech to tenfold the productivity of a psychologist? Mm -hmm. So if you only are doing telehealth or telemedicine and we're, you know, kind of having a conversation like what we're doing now, when I talk to you, I can't talk to anyone else. Mm 
And in that model, a psychologist would be maxed out at 50 clients per month. Ours, uh, the, the full-time nullary psychologists, are already at 500 to 1. Mm-hmm. Because you move things uh, from synchronous to asynchronous, you add in a lot of the digital self-help tools that people can do on their own, and the psychologist can be guided by the algorithms or decision support systems, mm-hmm. who should I pay attention to? Uh, we've grown from you know 100 to 1 four years ago, 300 to 1, and now 500 to 1. And that allows us to drive down the cost of professional healthcare. So 500 to 1 is the number is the number of actual individual users and the that one is individual the individual psychologist okay. supports. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And so that's primarily associated with simply getting smarter about how to integrate technology into filtering, gating, prioritizing, et cetera, right. et cetera. Yeah. Exactly. Or for example, imagine if we start a conversation and I want to know what are the stress triggers in your life, right? Mm-hmm. If I have to ask you questions, wait for you to reply, and then I've got to explain to you, okay, here's what depression means versus clinical depression, right? It takes up a lot of my time. Now I can say, hey, Kevin, when you get 10 minutes later during the day, just click on this link. It'll take you to a lesson that you can answer these standard questions, and then I can review them when I'm done. And the computer is also analyzing your questions because it's a standard structured questionnaire that we can compare live to 100,000 other people who've done that. Right, and okay. give me the psychologist insights that would have just been um, harder to pick up quick uh, as quickly on my own with just notes. Right. Okay. Okay. So getting getting onto how the the, the product has has now expanded and and built up, and you've 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 scaled it many times over. You know, when you're looking at Malaysia, it's it seems like you've landed a few big clients that have operations all across. When you look at the the further expansion, mm-hmm. how many countries are you currently operating in? So we're live in four: uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, and Thailand, and we'll likely launch the Philippines in 2023. So tell me about the process of replicating the market, the the product into a new market, because I imagine there's there's a couple of barriers, but I, I imagine there's more uh, if if we really got into it. But sure. c- certainly having a, a, a live psychologist backing it, uh, you need to find somebody that has local language, uh, the the dialects, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What's the process like of repl- of replicating, and any lessons that you might have sure. learned that you'll apply to the next country? Well, first, uh, our first attempt in 2021 completely failed uh, because you're trying to hire someone purely remotely. We couldn't Mm -hmm. travel uh, and and expect them to somehow get what you're trying to do and for them to pitch to clients and hire local uh, healthcare teams in each of these markets. It flopped. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until 2022 this year when we could travel. Uh, You know, my co-founder relocated in Singapore and, and I spent, you know, uh, two to three weeks almost every month in Jakarta to really build up the teams there, hire people, sit down with them, uh, that it's finally making a, a big difference. So one, it's just the effort that's needed, right? I think, um, you know, as founders, we've got to be there on the ground in person and especially to get the first set of clients. And while the, let's say you can hire a commercial director, They've got to observe you, right? And of course, as a Series A startup, you don't have the luxury of hiring like the top rainmakers, the big guns <laughs> who, you know, who are working with the unicorn. So uh, you've got to work with what you can. And, and that means as founders, mm-hmm. we have to be on the ground to lead it. The second thing I think is to then uh, focus on, number one, uh, our clients who have regional operations, right? So one of them, right? An airline that has, 
you know, affiliates in Indonesia and Singapore and Thailand, and they'll be like, well, great. Can you also serve our employees in these markets? Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise with one of the uh, global insurers. So that gives us a beachhead, right? Like you can have work and reference clients from your existing clientele. The second is to see clients who are potential clients from the same industries. So because we started to understand, you know, what's unique about, you know, different telecom company employees and the stresses and issues and conditions that they're wrestling with in Malaysia, we can go to a telco in Indonesia and share, you know, this is what we've learned, right? Likewise with an airline. So it allows us, I think, to uh, kind of win them over, right? Because we bring some level of familiarity with their industry. And and so that allows us to, to get those sets of clients as well. And then of course, once uh, the, the local business development teams are on the ground, they, they have the experience, hands-on experience with the first set of clients, they've now been able to go out and get their clients. And also the care delivery team can service the employees from those clients. Okay. Okay. I, I love I love the very tactical approach to how to build the customer base. Like look look at looking at regional players to get the beachhead, leveraging on specific industries so that you're you can speak to the particular pain points. I think those are great uh great lessons that other people can use and apply no matter what the type of startup mm. that they're building is. Yeah. When you look at launching in new markets and you're and you're hiring on talent, mm. um how do you how do you balance the those so those sort of intrinsic characteristics, especially with a salesperson, even in a country that may be speaking in an entirely different language? Like you go to mm-hmm. Thailand, you know, Malaysia to Indonesia, there's enough similarity between the languages, but they're obviously quite different. Yes. Um, but how do you how do you balance that? Because the 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 culture, the approach to sales, all of these are quite different from market to market. You know, honestly, even Malaysia and Singapore are more different then they are similar, right? It's mm. a lot more nuance. And, yeah. and what you learn is you can't get Malaysians flying down there and somehow convincing Singapore clients to come on board, right? Let alone Indonesia. Mm. Uh, Thailand, of course, as you're right, like completely different uh, language and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, similar to, to my experience at iFlix, it is, it's hard, but it is possible to find... Um, you know, sort of, let's say, for example, a, a Thai country head who comes from that similar uh, background. Uh, you know, for example, both my co-founder and I used to work with uh, McKinsey. So consulting background, you find someone similar, they kind of have the same kind of, uh, you know, language and, and thought process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's easier to uh, integrate and, and that helps a lot. So they can, they're much more comfortable with even English, right? Mm-hmm. Versus if you, you know, you take someone who who isn't, hard and so the the second indonesian uh country a commercial director that we hired he had gone to school in the u.s right so much more westernized than someone who uh you know grew up uh purely locally so mm-hmm. it helps to bridge that cultural gap right otherwise it is hard it, it will create problems and it is is the starting point to, to hire a country director or do you hire the 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 more junior staff levels first which which one comes first when you when you when you go into a new market so we we always over index on being top heavy even in mm-hmm. our home market uh you know for, for a series a startup every investor has said uh you are the top heaviest series a company we've met um but that's just for us you know we'd we'd rather get a really good solid team of let's say eight to ten leaders and and the Mm -hmm. the 
junior team might be there, but if you don't have enough leadership talent, we are the bottleneck, we're the constraint, right? Okay. So it is a big bet, but I, I think it is important. Okay. Well, let, let me take on that point because mm. uh, to, to pull on that thread a little bit, I think probably what they may be getting to is when you have when you have a lot of senior staff, especially if you're pulling somebody from an MNC or something like that, that has a lot of support staff, they may not always be ready to roll up their sleeves. So mm. how do you build that in that kind of culture within the organization that, you know, it's time to roll up the sleeves, everybody's getting into it? Yeah. So, so we, we've had, uh, you know, we, we tried to bring in two very senior uh, directors from uh, more traditional arts companies mm-hmm. and, and it failed. Uh, the, the ones who've succeeded, frankly, were because of personal relationships, right? Uh, you know, Tim, my CTO, was working with me at iFlix. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aiden, our chief commercial officer, had worked with Jeremy at McKinsey. Um, you know, so on one hand, I, I am, it, it makes me anxious because we, we might kind of develop this risk of group think we're not bringing people with um uh, more broad experience but i think maybe pre-series b it's better to err on the side of you know senior teams that are comfortable with each other uh because the risk of in in our case you know bringing you know let's say a, a data science director and medical affairs director from from outside uh it, it didn't work because they were just not used to it and didn't buy into the whole startup iterative culture, you know, daily standups. Um, yeah. It was very alien for them. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a completely different environment. I, I've, I've heard a lot of stories. I'm sure you have a number of experiences as well of just like, it's not always a fit. It's quite different between startup land and corporate world. Yes. Mm. The, the, what, what excites them uh, when they're outside thinking, oh, you guys are much more nimble and fast. <laughs> We're too bureaucratic. The moment they come in, they crave that stability and structure, yeah, right? And they struggle yeah. with that uncertainty. Yeah, you gotta gotta be, there's a certain personality that thrives in that uncertain environment and loves kind of, the, the there's a bit of chaos to it mm. because it is it is fast, it is moving, there's a lot of responsibility. So it's it's a different personality type. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Which is which is really tough to hire for, to be honest with you, because and as well, when you're talking about junior hires, to be able to escalate them and mm. onboard them, train them to where they become the next generation as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So let's 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 look forward a little bit. So you 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 mentioned that you have plans uh, in in the working to expand into the Philippines, but looking more broadly from a vision mm-hmm. standpoint, when you yep. look forward, how do you define success as an organization? Yes. What does it mean to you? Okay, one that nullary becomes what's called a standard reimbursable, meaning uh, you are you know insured and oh you've got diabetes, you've got mental health, you've got hypertension. Nullary, you can standard claim under your health insurance product. The second, doctors prescribe it, meaning, you know, you come to a doctor, doctor says, you know what, I'm going to diagnose you as being hypertensive. I'd like you to use Nullary uh, to support you in that program. That's kind of like for us, the gold standard that we want to get to. Mm -hmm. Getting there will be hard, right? Because uh, that's why we take a very data-driven approach uh, to work with insurers. They want, you know, for example, five years of data mm-hmm. so that they can really feed into the actual models and, and create these coverage that today doesn't exist. Mental health coverage doesn't exist in Southeast Asia. We mm-hmm. want to be the first to help create that, make that happen. 
And doctors are the most conservative, right? They'll want to know, has the Ministry of Health endorsed this, right? I don't want to get into any legal problems, right? Uh, an app, that sounds, you know, alien to, to many of them, right? Um, so it's hard, but that's our goal. That's our aspiration. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's the standard that we want to aspire to. Okay. Okay. So you you mentioned uh, metrics and, and so forth. So I'm curious when you look at your own business, mm -hmm. is, is there a single metric? Maybe, it, maybe you call it a North Star metric. North Star. Maybe you call it something else. Is there something that you're guiding yourself towards? Well, uh, ideally for us, it's the kind of the value of health that we improve from the lives that we improve, right? Mm -hmm. Because on one hand, yes, we, we can't, you know, for example, today, we've, we've supported uh, over 300,000 lives. Most of them are employees of our clients. But we're now starting to quantify, right? Because, for example, if I help you uh, bring down your weight by five kilograms, there's a certain value to that, which might be mm -hmm. different from an eight kilogram reduction. Mm -hmm. uh, bringing your depression score by 22% versus bringing your depression score by 47%, there's a different economic value to that, right? So you want to both increase reach, but also increase kind of the, the value of health uh, that you improve. And so if there was one metric, it would be one that, that combines both. Okay, that would that would be interesting to see to be able to quantify the economic impact of the the improvements across those health factors, escalated by the number of patients that are actually exactly. doing that. that That's would, that what would we're be obsessed really... about. Okay, okay, I, I got to dig on that a little bit sure. a little bit more. But like, how do you envision the connection in order to be able to quantify the economic value of? a 5 kg weight loss, uh, average weight loss across the 300,000, for example. Yeah. So uh, I guess for us, we're, we're lucky that one of our partners, who is also our one of our investors in Series A, uh, is the largest third-party administrator here in Malaysia, and they're doing a roll-up across Southeast Asia. So they serve corporate clients, and we work with them to dig into 500,000 employees, 10 years worth of medical claims data. Mm -hmm. We then layer on top of that sick leave data, mm -hmm. right? So if, if we can understand the profiles today, what sort of costs historically have they been claiming? Um, how many days off more than the kind of average healthy person that they take? Mm -hmm. And then you can value that, right? So there's, uh, if, if, you know, someone who is, for example, um, let's just take weight. Weight's probably easier, right? Like if they're at a 35 BMI, everything else being normalized, what's kind of the average medical uh, claims for that sort of profile versus someone at 30 versus someone at 25 versus someone at 20? Uh, so we, we use mm -hmm. that data set initially. And what we tell clients is as you help, uh, we work with you with your own data, that model becomes a lot more personalized to your population. Sure, sure. Interesting. And I, I'd imagine that there's you could even extend on more fuzzy concepts of like when they're not taking uh, leave, there may be productivity uh, mm. sacrifices because, yes. you know, even though I didn't take leave, I'm a little sluggish today. So I'm just not getting the same amount of output. Yes. Um, so that's hard presenteeism. Yeah. yeah. So, so there, there are uh, kind of standard international models to estimate mm. that. That's based on a self-declaration. So we do use that so that we can at least put an estimate uh, to that. So it's not, while it's not so robust, it's the first time for many companies, in fact, most companies, to actually see uh, presenteeism being quantified. Mm-hmm. 
So then, then let me let me transition into like what you can do in order to accomplish this this target goal. So when you when you look at trying to get the this type of outcome statement, mm-hmm. you know some sometimes people love to try and boil it down to we need to get this one thing absolutely right, maybe with two things. Do you look at the business that way? And is there one thing that you identify that you must absolutely obsess over to, ch- to achieve that goal? Well, uh, for us, it is what we call health data sets, right? Mm-hmm. So today we have uh, 300,000 uh, depression, anxiety, and stress data sets and 30,000 uh, blood test data sets. So we measure blood sugar, cholesterol, weight, blood pressure. Um, and, and that's the starting point, right? And I think as we work with reinsurance companies, for them, wow, that's the first time they've seen it, but they'll want to know uh, that data on a longitudinal basis. So not just a snapshot, but tell me how does that evolve at month 12, at month 24, at month 36? Uh, because if it comes back to that key vision, if you want to create something where insurance companies go, right, I can now add mental health coverage to my corporate uh, insurance product, that data is going to be so crucial, mm-hmm. right? And And frankly, doctors may also be much more inclined to prescribe it if they know, oh, you know, insurance companies will pay for this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Very, 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 very interesting how that, how that ends up playing out. Let, let me, let me wrap things up here. If, sure. if I may, with my standard closing questions. Um, the first one is what is a tech tool that you just can't live without? Well, you know, for me, mine uh, is my Google calendar. And, and specifically, I'm obsessed about color coding it. Mm-hmm. So I've got different colors for internal in-person meetings, uh, in uh, internal virtual meetings, external in-person meetings, external virtual meetings, uh, time for me to think, time for me to plan. Everything is mapped out, right? So for example, Mondays at 8 a.m. is my private thinking time, right? 12 to 1's private thinking time. And Google Calendar also helps you measure that, right? Because mm-hmm. sometimes you're like, wow, I'm way too focused this last three weeks with external clients and investors and not really paying attention to the team inside. How can I recalibrate that in the coming week? So um, so I, I am obsessed about kind of ma- managing my time and, and, and Google Calendar helps us to quantify that. They've got these insights that you can generate now, right? Okay. Okay. I think I think you've you've just one up me on my level of calendar obsession. I, I, I am myself, but I think you've now one up me. <laughs> uh, last last question sure. here. So, if you were to talk to talk to another startup founder that's just getting started, what would be the one biggest piece of advice that you could offer? Um. So for me, right when I look back, uh, and I think right now in twenty twenty two, a lot of founders very concerned about fundraising. Mm. And uh, I think the the people who've invested in us were people that we connected with them 18 to 24 months earlier. Uh, they oftentimes decline first round, right? Mm-hmm. So one, you got to think way ahead. You got to connect with people, even if, uh, for example, um, they might be a series B investor and they might be, you know, four years out, but you got to want to try to get to know them tell them about what you're building and keeping them posted, maybe with mm-hmm. quarterly, if not monthly, you know, simple, short three bullet point emails so that at the right time, you're a friendly or, or a familiar name and story and not six to nine months out. You're mm-hmm. only trying to get to know people. 
I, th- I think that's fantastic advice. I mean, it's it's really a relationship business when it comes down to it. I mean, there's there's obviously a bit more to it than that, but no one writes a big check after meeting somebody for a couple of days. Well, I, I I wouldn't say no one. I mean, there's there's certainly people in the news that have done it, um, but certainly like it's a, it's a long game building those relationships. Sure. I think that's phenomenal advice. And even you know there is churn from one VC firm to another. So being able to follow up understand where your contacts are going somebody from a late stage may move to an early stage and there could be a fit so i i, I love that i love that advice of just kind of playing the the people game uh component exactly right mm. and then maybe because when we are b2b you you realize okay i've got to manage these relationships as a funnel right if i want 10 clients i've got to see 100 mm-hmm. right i've got to be able to pitch to 50 etc and same thing with fundraising yeah, I I love that analogy actually because I I say the same thing to to most startups that I discuss this with is that it's managing a funnel. You need to understand kind of like qualified lead versus non qualified lead. You need to go through the process of qualifying. You know, corporate sales, B two B sales, they're longer sales cycles. So you need to understand touch points, relationship, etc. Fantastic analogy. I love that. Awesome. Well, this has been a really great conversation, Osrin. This is this is really illuminating in regards to what you're building. I love all the insights along the pathway, especially from a seasoned entrepreneur such as yourself. Great. Well, happy to share. Excellent. Thank you very much. All right, that wraps it up for another fantastic episode of The Sea of Startups. If you've enjoyed this episode, Please share it with a friend, go on to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It's the best way for us to get discovered and to have these startup stories reach a broader audience. If you have any suggestions or would like to get in touch, you can email me at kevin at indelible.vc. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Rockland from Indelible Ventures, and this is The Sea of Startups.